Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. A North Korean threat is a reality Asia has had to deal with for some time, but now that they have nuclear weapons that can reach the United States mainland, the stakes have changed. Tensions on the Korean peninsula remain high, and two unpredictable and strong-willed leaders, Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump, could escalate the situation quickly. Are we fast approaching Korean War II nuclear boogaloo, or are we just dealing with an old man yelling at a kid to get off his guam? To shed insight on the issues the likes of which the world has never seen is Professor Nick Bisley, Executive Director of Latrobe Asia. Welcome to you. Hi, man. And also joining us is Dr. Benjamin Habib, Lecturer in International Relations at Latrobe University. Welcome to you. Thanks for having me on. Ben, we'll start with you. Uh, what do you believe is the reality of North Korean's weapon capabilities? And can you talk me through why is it suddenly a pressing concern? The trajectory of the nuclear program has been clear for quite a while. And the technological challenges are also well known. So North Korea is gunning for a reliable, long-range, intercontinental ballistic missile delivery system. So the ability to accurately deliver a nuclear weapon to a target, as well as the ability to miniaturise a nuclear bomb to put on one of those delivery systems. So you've got two components there that are pretty crucial and people have been really watching how they're going with those two components. Yeah, they're the key technological challenges and that's why North Korea's regularly test missiles because they're trying to perfect uh, that capability and also the nuclear tests. They are a powerful diplomatic signal but also they're an important uh, technological marker that the North Korean scientists can learn from as they're trying to develop the bomb in a miniaturised state. So this has always been seen as a future challenge, you know, something that would present as a problem down the line. But now it's become more of an immediate concern. So what's new is that there was a, a U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency report, which came out in the Washington Post recently, uh, that North Korea had now developed a reliable nuclear-capable ICBM, and that would be ready for deployment next year in 2018, which was well ahead of schedule of what previous estimates uh, had thought. The regular missile tests that we've seen over the last year or so, it looks like they've really helped to accelerate the development of this missile capability. And it looks like, according to this DIA report, that industrial production of these ICBMs is only months away. Mm. Uh, So they're ready for action. So this is no longer an over-the-horizon concern, but it's now become an immediate strategic issue. So given this development, though, you know, you have to ask, is a deployable nuclear-armed ICBM capability in North Korea a threat? And there's broadly two schools of thought in interpreting that level of threat. So the first one is North Korea will be able to hit targets in the continental United States with nuclear-armed ICBMs. Mm. This is seen as a threat if you subscribe to the view that the North Korean leadership is an evil, brutal dictatorship whose leadership is unpredictable. North Korean propaganda consistently threatens the United States with annihilation. I mean, that's something that goes back a long, long time, predates the nuclear program. But if you take these threats seriously, then you're thinking that North Korea represents a clear and present threat uh, to the United States and that the appropriate response is to use military force. And at least on the level of rhetoric, this appears to be what Trump and his administration are arguing. The other school of thought is that nuclear capabilities don't necessarily equate to intentions to use them in that way. From this point of view, you can argue that the North Korean leadership is overwhelmingly concerned with its perpetuation and survival. Uh, And it sees 
having a nuclear weapons capability as integral to ensuring its survival in what it sees as a hostile strategic environment. Uh, if you subscribe to this view, you're thinking that if survival is the imperative, then North Korea is not going to attack first because that would invite overwhelming retaliation from the United States, mm. which would end the regime, and that would be counter to the logical goal. Uh, if that's then the case, then a nuclear North Korea could certainly be deterred by uh, the American nuclear umbrella uh, and the conventional military deterrence posture that's been in place since the Korean War and has been a successful baseline for U.S. Uh, South Korean strategy since that time. That gives you kind of two options, which I don't think anybody would be willing to to try and decide between, and, and I don't know how you could, but is that what's going through Washington's mind at the moment? Is this a deterrent or is this something that they're actively trying to use? How do you even come to decide between those two? Well, I, th- I think there's two things going on in Washington. There's a short-term political diplomatic issue, which is Trump has, has said, they'll never get them. He tweeted out early on in his presidency, this will never happen that North Korea will never get an intercontinental ballistic missile. So there's a how do you how do you sort of save face and how do you ideally, you know, I think from an American, I mean, from everyone's point of view, by the North Koreans, I think no one wants them to have nuclear weapons that they can use and can hit. And let's not forget, if they can hit the continental United States, they can hit Western Europe, they can hit India, they can hit Southeast Asia, and of course, they can hit Australia, although there's a high level of a strategic narcissism that thinks that we're going to be high up on a targeting list. But the short-term issue is how do we manage this? Is there something that we, the Americans and others, can do to stop the sprint to the finish? You know, that's where they're at now. And then there's the larger game of balance of probabilities. Is they're going to have them? How do we manage it and what do we do? Yeah. Can I ask about that timing? Is there the belief that they may have gotten outside assistance or managed to, to get technology from elsewhere to, to up their timeline? No, I don't think so. They've been working on this indigenously for a long time and the sanctions regime has really prevented uh, any outside assistance, at least since the 1990s when uh, uh, A.Q. Khan, who was the father of Pakistan's nuclear program, provided a nuclear centrifuge plans, mm. uh, which helped in uh, developing uh, uranium enrichment uh, in the north. But there's not a great deal of evidence that there's outside assistance. Ben's absolutely right. There was a report that came out a week or two ago from a London think tank saying the Ukrainians are involved and the Russians are involved, but that was very quickly hosed down. And people who, you know, like Jeffrey Lewis and co, who whose lives are spent focusing on this missile program said, no, this is... Yeah, for the past, really for the past 20 years or so, this is a almost entirely indigenous thing. A lot of this tech is out there. If you know what you're looking for and you're an engineer, it's just doing it. You know, getting the technology to do it and knowing what you're trying to do is almost off the shelf in some respects. It's actually getting the engineering right. There's no evidence that the acceleration is because of someone helping them. What's motivating North Korea to get to this point of being nuclear weapon capable? Just broadly speaking, I know there's a big backstory involved here, but what has driven them to get to this point? Yeah, that's a good question. And the motivations for the nuclear program are are more complex than you'd imagine from the kind of inane coverage that we see in the media of this issue. I mean, the obvious motivation is deterrence. It's that hostile strategic environment idea. And you can point to examples of other fallen regimes around the world, like Saddam Hussein in Iraq, uh, Gaddafi in Libya. The Kim regime's looking at those examples and saying they didn't have nuclear weapons. Look what happened to them when they tried to pull an independent foreign policy That's an obvious motivation. Uh, In terms of having an asymmetric strategy, North Korea is a a very small country. Uh, Although it has a large military by numbers of personnel, that military is technologically unsophisticated. A large proportion of that force is not combat ready. Uh, 
Mm. Uh, and they're facing up against the United States and South Korean forces who are highly technologically sophisticated. So, but th- just on numbers, though, they do have the fourth largest in the world. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep. Fourth largest military. And yeah, most of them are out digging ditches and, yeah, true. Okay. And, and farming and doing other stuff. So they're not ready to be put into combat straight away. And they've got other issues like uh, fuel shortages and they're using obsolete hardware. So there's just no comparison in terms of what they're up against on the other side of the DMZ. So having nuclear weapons is a, is a strategic equaliser there. Mm. Uh, it helps to uh, ameliorate some of that conventional military disadvantage. But then North Korea gets a lot of diplomatic prestige from having nuclear weapons and it gives them more clout when they're dealing with other countries, including China, not just the United States and South Korea. Clout that they otherwise wouldn't have in the absence of the nuclear program. One of the thoughts that's kicking around is that the North Koreans do eventually want to sign a peace treaty uh, with the United States. But the thinking there is if they have the nuclear weapons program, they're in a much stronger negotiating position to get a better deal from those negotiations Mm. uh, and have that deal stick rather than if they try and enter those negotiations now from a, a strategically weaker bargaining position. I mean, just to add one other thing to Ben's list of why they want them, and it relates particularly to Kim Jong-un, and there's this question of identity and the sort of link between identity and prestige where, you know, the regime has put, you know, North Korea as a nuclear weapon power in the constitution. Now, you know, constitutions, you know, you shouldn't go too far with them in authoritarian dictatorships, but in terms of a statement of intent about kind of the idea of what North Korea is in the mind of the regime, having nuclear weapons is really, really profoundly important and it relates to not just questions of security and negotiating leverage and significantly enhancing their ability to defend themselves but also it allows the government to present itself as amongst the top tier of Mm. countries in the world that is this doughty power that can stand up against the forces of evil as it presents them and and it presents the outside world basically in its entirety is out to get it from that point of view i think the package of reasons why they've got them is broad and complex To get to Kim Jong-un, he was not the obvious successor. He has made pretty short work of seeing off all of his rivals. He's killed a lot of um, family members. Actually, on that that note, I read the other day that all the pallbearers at his father's funeral are now dead. They're all dead by one who is in hiding or in exile. So essentially getting rid of opposition. And potential opposition and anyone with a power base that could threaten him. He's pretty ruthless, but like any authoritarian, pretty insecure in the sense that when you sit atop a pyramid that's in place largely through coercion and control and not through consent, you know, you've got to keep a very close eye on things. And nuclear weapons, I think, is is seen as, rightly or wrongly, is seen as a fundamental means to secure that position of himself and the Korean Workers' Party in their position of authority and power domestically, as well as their security internationally. So it's a big interlocking set of pieces of the puzzle, which also means that if you're looking at thinking, how do we get North Korea to give these things up? The calculus for them, from Kim Jong-un's point of view, to hand over nuclear weapons is very difficult to imagine because the price that he would pay in his own mind in terms of insecurity and threats to the regime is immense. And I think that's often forgotten by people who say, you know, why can't these guys be negotiated with? Why won't they hand these things over? Because he looked at what had happened to people in the past, like Saddam Hussein, who rolled back nuclear weapon projects and everything, and look at how well that went for him and his plans. Yeah, the, the weakness within and the weakness mm. from without. You know, you can be overthrown from a superior military force and end up in a gutter with a bayonet in your backside, as, as Gaddafi did, and that's, you know, 
A sobering thought from Kim Jong-un's point of view. Mm. This is the logic of trying to maintain power in this kind of political system is that the internal power games are incredibly brutal, Game of Thrones style uh, manoeuvring and uh, the execution of Chang Song Tech was a, a great example of that. So there's no suite of incentives that the international community could possibly offer uh, Kim Jong-un that would convince him to give up willingly uh, the nuclear weapons program. Mm. So when asked how he was going to deal with this problem, uh, Donald Trump gave an unscripted, off-the-cuff, pure Trumpian kind of response. Uh, and I think that I can drop a clip of that in here now. North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. He has been very threatening uh, beyond a normal statement. And as I said, they will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power, the likes of which this world has never seen before. Thank you. Thank you. So is that a good approach to try and deal with North Korea? Is, is fire and fury a useful rhetoric just as a threat? Uh, do you think there's any substance behind it? Is that a good approach? I think what he's trying to do, and to give him his due, I think he's trying to do a kind of, yeah, this is the Nixon madman theory, which is to present this wild face that's in contrast to Obama and Bush, who you knew exactly what they're going to do. He could do it. He could well do it. And the thinking is you try to put some doubt in the minds of Kim Jong-un. Mm. And then you contrast that Trump out front and then Tillerson and Mattis come in and say, no, no, it's okay. Good cop, bad cop routine. And the intent, I think, is to get Pyongyang to go, huh, and to kind of blink and think these guys mean business in a way that we haven't seen before. And frankly, Trump is this wildly unpredictable, you know, highly emotive guy who's got his finger on the button. Mm. And I think that's the intent. Now, Maybe that's giving him a little more strategic credit than maybe due. There's certainly a considered view in conservative circles in Washington, both within the White House and outside it, that Washington needs to take a much firmer line with North Korea and that the only way you're going to get any movement, you're probably not going to get them to give them up, but you might get them to the table, is put the fear of God in them. Yep. That's an incredibly high-risk strategy. <laughs> you can see the logic in that strategy, but you can't out-tough North Korea. Mm. Like they've got a consistent record of not paying attention to any kinds of uh, threats or coercion. There's elements of Trump's business negotiating style in this where he's presenting a really extreme opening bargaining ante and maybe might roll back from there. But there's a reason why people haven't talked tough on military force in the Korean context for a long time. Uh, It's because there's just such high risks. Uh, The vulnerability of Seoul, the capital of South Korea, the United States' big ally here. Which is really close to the border. 40 k's away. It's indefensible from artillery attack and short-range rocket attack. So when you threaten fire and fury against North Korea, you're playing Russian roulette with the capital of your ally. Mm. Uh, And that carries all kinds of political risks. It's certainly highly unpopular with large segments of people in South Korea. And that threatens the legitimacy of the alliance, whether or not they attack can North Korea's nuclear infrastructure be destroyed completely by airstrikes? Uh, you know, there's likely to be multiple sites heavily dug into the mountains and sites that we're not aware of, that the intelligence community hasn't discovered yet, and possibly unknown uh, nuclear assets. And then, of course, there's questions about the governance of North Korea after any said attack. 
Mm. You know, who fills the power vacuum? Can we assume that South Korea is just going to take charge and, and unify the country? I don't think so. The Chinese have their own visions about what they want strategically from North Korea uh, as a strategic space, as a buffer zone. Mm. Uh, there's lots of economic assets related to Chinese business interests. So we can't assume that it's just an, an easy transition uh, to a unified Korea. Uh, there's the refugee problem. So what happens if there's a, a governance failure? All these refugees are going into China uh, and they might eventually end up coming to South Korea. Is South Korea prepared to incorporate such a big influx uh, and the costs of reconstruction? Yeah, yeah. Whoever takes charge of North Korea has to rebuild and that's likely to be an enormous cost. So that seems to be the Steve Bannon school of thought. It was all talk that this is going to be undercut, that there is no feasible way to preempt anything with fire and fury. Is that the more sort of logic of it, that it was all bluster? Well, it's hard to say. If you want to be, if you want to be really struck stone cold sober, listen to a good podcast, wonderfully named the Deep State Radio Podcast. Uh, and there was a conversation with Graham Allison, who's written a book on the Thucydides trap and that sort of stuff. But Allison was in the... Clinton White House. So this is the early 90s. So this is when the North Korean nuclear stuff first took off. And they sat in the White House and said, how many casualties in South Korea are we prepared to put up with to stop North Korea getting nuclear weapons? We figured, this was in the 1990s, he said, probably two or 300,000 would be killed if we did a preemptive strike. And we were prepared to live with that. Mm, right. And the concern that I think a lot of people have with Trump and co is... If you put the America First glasses on this, which is a few hundred thousand dead South Koreans, possibly tens of thousands of dead Japanese, that may be the price worth paying to ensure that we don't get a nuclear North Korea. Mm. And that, I think, is a live calculation in Washington. Interestingly, I would have assumed prior to that interview that Steve Bannon gave that that would have been a Bannon position, but actually he's sort of mainstream, if you like, in the sense that, as Ben was saying, the human cost of this is astronomical and they are your allies. If they decided to do this and the allies ended up dead in, in large numbers, then the alliance system's dead and literally and figuratively and then the, all bets are off. But it's there. There is a school of thought in Washington that says that's a very high price, but that may be a price we have to pay. Trump seems to think that China is responsible for North Korea and it's up to China to make a solution to this and that China has the, the clout to get this done. Uh, there's a lot going on here, as in uh, China shares a border with North Korea. China is responsible for a lot of the resources going into North Korea. So what is what is China's position and what do they want out of this North Korean situation? What's their ideal scenario? Yeah, well, Trump's not the first American leader to urge China to do more uh, to combat North Korea. Uh, and this is based on the reality, as you say, that China is the funnel through which North Korea interacts with the world. It's the, it's the pipeline through which uh, all of North Korea's exports head out of the country. It's the primary trading partner, etc. So on that basis, uh, the logic is that China's in a position to squeeze that funnel and exert leverage. Uh, however, that's based on the thinking that China and American interests are closely aligned. Mm. And we can't assume that that's the case. You know, China's long valued North Korea as a buffer zone, uh, blocking the Korean peninsula. So Beijing doesn't want American troops up to the Yalu River frontier. Uh, and we remember back to the Korean War when, when Mao had mobilized 300,000 troops along that frontier uh, to counter against the UN forces coming up that far, and they eventually intervened. 
for that. But this goes back much further. You know, Korea is a historic invasion corridor for any threats coming from Japan into, into China. You've got a fear of a refugee influx from North Korea into uh, Jilin and Yaoling provinces. However, there is quite a vigorous debate in the Chinese foreign policy establishment now uh, over the nature of the Sino-DPRK relationship. Uh, some people are looking at Kim Jong-un as a, a loose cannon uh, whose escalations uh, are not showing due deference to the needs and wishes of China as the senior alliance partner. There's a suggestion there that maybe China should cut North Korea loose. The North Korea issue is a really good example of how when the partner is very junior but has a very high strategic value to the senior partner, if you're prepared to, your string can go a long, long, long way. And I think Kim Jong-un's about at the end of it, but he knows that there's a point beyond which, certainly under Xi Jinping in the next 18 months, Beijing is not going to go. He's basically pushing that for all it's worth until he gets his nukes that can deliver a, a significant payload to the US in sufficient numbers that he can then begin to, to negotiate from strength. So the UN has tried multiple rounds of sanctions and uh, there's a belief that this will be a more effective tool that can be employed by China as well. So are they effective? Well, they've proved not to be uh, over the last uh, sort of 10 years since the first nuclear test. And there's a few reasons for this. I mean, North Korea's proven that it's a determined nuclear weapons proliferator. And the fact we're having this conversation proves that they're really intent on making this end run towards a deployable nuclear weapons program. And they're willing to absorb any economic shocks that come from sanctions measures. And they're happy to do that because they've proven to be an effective and creative sanctions buster, whether that's by setting up a, a system of dummy companies to do financial fraud overseas and bring in foreign income that way, funneling trade through China. China has proven in the past to be quite relaxed on enforcing sanctions measures. Mm. Uh, however, the last round of sanctions that's come in, there's been a change of tack from China here, and that reflects some of the discourse in the Chinese foreign policy elite about what they should do with North Korea. Uh, so we've seen China start to tighten the screw economically. Uh, we've seen a ban on North Korean exports of coal and iron ore, uh, of lead and seafood. don't know how that fits in with the resource mix. Uh, but these are export products being sent from North Korea into China that were quite significant foreign currency earners. Mm particularly since 2009, uh, North Korea really started to make a lot more money from exporting uh, primary products into China and beyond. So these export bans that the Chinese have put in place, they're quite unprecedented in the history of the sanctions regime. The question is, how strongly will China enforce them? They've made a very strong rhetorical commitment here. How tightly are they going to tighten the screw? Are either of you prepared to crystal ball gaze as to what's going to happen? in the near future? Do you think that he's going to use them once he has them? No. He's perfectly rational. The key to it all, as Ben said right from the top, is the primary number one value in Pyongyang is regime survival. And if you buy that, then there's absolutely no incentive for first strike. Mm. He'll use them if he's threatened, as in attacked. That is absolutely certain. But I think the balance of probabilities is that North Korea will be a nuclear weapon state the region will actually be more stable with the nuclear North Korea. Mm. It'll be riskier. More nuclear weapons is inherently a more risky environment. But where we are now is probably about the worst place we could be, which is this highly uncertain, febrile environment with threats and counter threats and supercharged rhetoric and politicians, as you said, sort of combustible politicians with a lot of face. And once they've got them and we figure out how we can live with them, and there's a, there's a nuclear deterrence playbook that works, 
I think that's where we're likely to be. The one most optimistic scenario, which I think is less likely but possible, is some kind of freeze where North Korea says, okay, well, we're not going to give anything up, but we won't go any further than where we are. And we use that to negotiate some kind of peace treaty. I still think that's pretty unlikely. That freeze idea, that's the kind of negotiating logic that was taking place earlier in the development of the nuclear program. And North Korea used that uh, as a bargaining tool to extract concessions and all kinds of goodies uh, from the Americans and South Koreans. So I don't think that's uh, greatly likely. But I think, yeah, once North Korea gets the nuclear weapons, then the region has to start to get on with the task of actually managing this situation. And then the goalposts are set. Then there's a, a set place. At the moment, there's too much flux. There's too many unknowns in terms of what North Korea's capability actually is and a lot of scope for miscalculation uh, when that information is obscure. But I would say the more that Trump pushes the fire and fury button Mm. and threatens force, that makes the situation more unstable because it pushes the situation further into a point where Kim feels backed into a corner. That's one scenario, but the other unknown quantity here is is Trump. He's got his own buttons, he's got his own weapons, and he's talked about preemptive retaliation. That's not even a thing. What's stopping him from doing that? I mean, nothing is stopping him. To be really clear, he has his finger on the button, and when he presses it, it will happen. Mm. So there's no second guessing, there's no control, there's straight line chain of command, and that's the American system, whether you like it or not. I still think it's unlikely. I think the show he puts on in public is a show. I think he's... You know, more strategic thinker than people appear. He's not a genius. He's not, you know, Machiavelli and Kissinger. But he's also not the grumpy old man sitting in front of the of Fox and Friends all of the time. Not not on this stuff. I mean, he's a complex, weird figure. But I'm prepared based on, you know, reading I've done, talk to people who've spoken to him, all this sort of stuff, that on these issues, he's not going to just go and press the button because he's really ticked off. Yeah. But one thing I'd add if you want to get more worried, and this I think is the, probably the most disconcerting part of the current noise and the decision the Americans have gone down to to up the rhetorical ante is that both Pyongyang and Beijing will respond to the fact that the Americans actually aren't going to press the button and aren't going to use the military force by assuming that Trump is a paper tiger, that he's just full of hot air and can be ignored Mm -hmm. and that they will be emboldened to take steps that they otherwise wouldn't have taken, which then get him into the, holy crap, I've been pushed into a corner and I've got to come out swinging. Yep. So they were not there yet, but that's, to me, one of the biggest risks of this current scenario. Yeah, that's the danger of talking tough. If you don't follow through on your threats, it makes you look like a paper tiger. And the United States is in a phase now where it's relatively declining regional power. And they can't afford to make mistakes like that because that accelerates that process, you know, diminishes the value of their alliance guarantees. Uh, It emboldens China and Russia to step further. So... Now, the Korean Peninsula is part of a broader Sino-American game that's going on in East Asia. A miscalculation by Trump in Korea has consequences for what happens in these other places, like the South China Sea, for example. Mm. And that's actually for a lot of people who watch this stuff closely. The concern is not only the paper tiger stuff, but that Washington is looking at East Asia and only seeing North Korea and not seeing the bigger picture. You go to Southeast Asia... And they're all just like, ah, what about us? You've forgotten about us. And China's not. China's in there making hay whilst the US is fixated on Pyongyang. All right. I won't go booking my holiday to Guam just yet then. Thank you both for your time today. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. 
Uh, you've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. Please leave a review. They make us feel appreciated. Thank you very much. You can follow Nick Bisley on Twitter. He's at Nick Bisley. And you can follow Ben Habib on Twitter. He's at Dr. Benjamin Habib. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.